say you love this country, you say you really care, but America is dying. I don't see no love nowhere. You say you love this country and the freedoms that we share, but America is dying. I don't see no love nowhere. They say America is dying. They say America is dead. But there's a lot of people lying. And there's a lot left unsaid. After graduating high school from Owen Sound, Ontario, Canada in 2007, Canada Caleb founded and opened Canadian Bushcraft, a traditional wilderness skills program. And he thinks I googled the snot out of him. Caleb Musgrave trained in archaeology at the Aboriginal Archaeology Liaison Project. <laughs> He's worked as an assistant crew chief in archaeological projects in Wyoming, South Dakota, and Colorado within the borders of these United States. He taught indigenous studies at Fleming University. Caleb was behind and in the Canadian television series Merchants of the Wild. We have a celebrity on today. <clears throat> oh, God. He is a lifelong organizer of people and traditional culture. He's an author, photographer, knife designer, birch bark canoe builder, and a dog person. 100%. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Around the Campfire with Kate, where we strive to teach, learn, and grow skills for survival in almost every aspect of today's society by practicing yesterday's skills. Oh, yeah. Tonight, I welcome Caleb Musgrave of Canadian Bushcraft. How's it going? Campfire. As you can see from the monologue, Caleb has accomplished in his little <laughs> short life some impressive feats. Welcome to my campfire, Caleb. Thank you. Miigwech. Thank you. Um, one correction. I actually never finished my degree. Uh, your, <gasps> your, our, our dear friend who was your researcher for that got that wrong. I actually finished at the university, but I didn't finish my degree. I, I decided to bounce. <laughs> I decided to get out. I was like, I'm not learning anything here anymore. I got to get out of here. Oh, he is so fired. Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm glad that he got that wrong. So now somebody else can be mad at him for that kind of stuff. <laughs> well, talk to me about who Caleb Musgrave is. Sure. So uh, my... My mother and my father met up in James Bay, which I'm sure if you've seen in like a map of North America, you've seen Hudson Bay, which is that giant bay coming out of the Arctic Circle, out of the Arctic right. Ocean down into Ontario. And there's this tiny little like inlet on a map. But if you're there, it's huge. It's bigger than Lake Ontario uh, called James Bay. And that's where we lived until I was about two or three years old. My father's Ojibwe. My mother's Scottish and English. Uh, from the Gaspé Peninsula of Quebec. So she was actually, uh, her ancestors actually Tories, loyalists who fled America during the, the Revolutionary War because they still sided with the British <clears throat> to their own mistake. And uh, they ended up in Gaspé, Quebec, and they lived as homesteaders until the 1970s for most of the family. And then some of them started to move out of Gaspé into Ontario. And we, I always joke that my family has been slowly migrating across Canada the slowest. So now we're in, we're in Ottawa and Peterborough, and now there's some that are in Southampton, Ontario, and on Lake Huron. In about 250 years, we'll reach British Columbia. Uh, <laughs> and so that they raised me with a lot of different like skills. My dad raised me knowing how to track, how to hunt, how to make fire in the bush, all the like 
primal kind of survival stuff that everybody likes to I learn. I was told you were hatched, <laughs> not raised. Or, it was more spawned. It was more spawned. I just oh. kind of, they, they got married and a couple years later I just showed up and that's just kind of how it was spontaneous creation. Um, and yeah, so my dad taught me a lot of the primal skills and my mother taught me more of the, uh, soft skills, like how to talk to people, how to communicate, how to actually learn to be around people. Cause my dad's not good at that. Uh, but also homesteading, like how to can foods, how to grow foods, things like that. And so as I got older, through grade school, through high school, I realized, yeah, this academia stuff's not for me. And yeah, this nine to five thing isn't for me. Uh, I, I'm definitely not set up mentally or emotionally to ever serve in the forces. And that makes complete sense. I'd rather not have someone like me in the forces. Uh, so I decided I'm just going to go live in the bush. That made the most sense for me. And when I was about 18 years old, I started meeting people from my community, from other communities, like other First Nations communities who didn't know what I already knew at the age of 18. And I was like, holy shit, like that's, if I leave and I die from like a bear attack or a moose drowns me or something, anything I know just goes with me. And like that, that realization that some of this stuff is so like on a precipice that scared me out of that idea of leaving and just going off to the bush and being Jeremiah Johnson. And so by 2008, 2009, I had started up Canadian bushcraft to try and teach as many people as I can and learn from as many people as I can, because I, I'm not the end all be all on this stuff. I know a lot of facts. I know a lot of the details. I have a lot of the hard skills to back that stuff up, but there's always someone who knows more. So I was, I'm always like that hungry learner. That's like willing to spill all my info out like I'm doing right now. And then like suck in as much information as I can into the void that is my brain and learn as much as I possibly can. So I've, I've traveled to Alberta. I've traveled to Florida, Texas, uh, all over the Western States with, uh, with Jim, uh, over in Colorado, Utah, Montana, South Dakota, uh, didn't get to Arizona, which drives me nuts. Cause that's one place I've been wanting to go to since I was like a teenager, but it was a job. So I couldn't go that way at that time, but I've been all over a lot of the States, much of Canada, except for British Columbia and the territory. So I haven't been to the Yukon yet or the Northwest territories or Nunavut, but I've been all over Ontario, Quebec, the, the Maritimes and learning from anyone I can, whether they're Mi'kmaq uh, Siok, Inuit, or Inuk, if they're singular, uh, my people, the Anishinaabek or Ojibwe, the Haudenosaunee or the Ganyageha, the Mohawk and Iroquois nations, or French, uh, Dutch, English. Uh, I learn from everybody. I'm very much a believer that a lot of the soft and hard skills that we carry are universal. A lot of this stuff, whether you're a Sami from Finland or, uh, or Sweden or you're an Evenk or Chutsky from Eastern Siberia, or you are a homesteader in Montana. You have similar needs, and therefore you're going to find similar solutions. And they may be more creative, or they may have some different variances, but I think a lot of what we know as human beings comes from being human being, and not from being of a specific culture. Though there are definitely cultural things there's cultural aspects material culture ceremonial culture language all that kind of beautiful stuff that makes humans so diverse but there's a lot of base core things and principles that i think we all can kind of agree upon and learn from so that's really the basis of who i am i try to learn from everybody and teach everybody i can so tell me about your podcast canadian bushcraft and what you do yeah, so we uh, started it at the onset of the 2019-2020 beginning of the pandemic. So 2020 April is when we started. Um, and the idea of the podcast was I just wanted to shoot the shit with some friends while 
passing on any factoids or any knowledge that we already knew. So I have, we've got episodes of like, here's how to buy gear without breaking the bank all the way to screw gear. Let's talk about knowledge and all that kind of stuff. And then beyond. So we've had episodes talking about like how to actually, like, this is your first day on your homestead. Where's your firewood going to come from for this winter all the way to how do we make water safe in the wild all the way to how do we see save heritage or heirloom seeds for the future and for, for good generations to come. So we cover a lot of bases that's usually hosted by myself and then my two special guest hosts that are pretty much my co-host at this point, Ryan Moffat or Ride the Adventure Guy and Nikki Satira. And we cover a lot of bases. We bring in a, a lot of guests. I'm hoping to bring you on the show eventually once we have some actual time to line up our schedule for the summer and when you're free too. Um, it's pre- <laughs> I it's would pre- love re- to. Please, please. I would love to have you. Uh, it's, we're pre-recorded and it's always dropped on Sunday afternoons. So it's pretty straightforward, pretty easy to find our stuff and the best part for me is that means I can record like eight or nine episodes in a single day, which we've done. It hurts, but we've done it. And then we just balance and go play for the next two months and do our own thing while the shows come out. Um, since Ontario has gotten a little bit more tighter and stringent on our lockdown, we've had to get more creative. So we're using uh, things like Skype or Zoom to do our calls and bring in special guests and interview. We actually got to interview one of the uh, finalists for last season's uh, show alone. Uh, Kylan Maroney, uh, me and Rye, uh, Rye had a chance to actually interview her in person just before the severe lockdown began in, uh, March of 2020. That would have been so cool. Oh, she's a badass. Oh, I'll bet. She's so cool. She, her and her husband live almost, I think like a hundred percent off grid and like 80% of their diet comes from whatever they can find on the land or what they can grow on the land. And they're just these two busy bodies that are just building this great res like their company's called lure of the North and they take people on one week expeditions, weekend trips, and then like three month trips into the Canadian subarctic and boreal. Oh my gosh. I love her in the dead of winter time. Oh, she's so cool. I freaking love Kylan. If Kylan's listening to this, which I have no idea, she's never online. She's always so busy, but if you ever listen to this, Kylan, I love you and I miss you. I hope to see you again soon. This is, you're awesome. We've also interviewed people like, uh, Chris Gilmore, who runs Chris Outdoors, and he's right, right, figuring out ways to teach online a lot of the stuff that we teach in person. Usually, a lot of the hard skills are really hard to teach online. And him and I have been figuring out a few ways. He runs like nature awareness programs online, helping people learn how to a forecast weather, b track animals, c listen to birds and figure out what they're talking about, and figure out how to actually become completely aware of the environment around you, which has been really his forte for the last twenty something years. And him and I just jive. So over this past nine months, we've been developing a beta course for a hunting course online where we can teach people ethical hunting techniques, all the basics of what you're going to need outside of an actual hunter safety course that you have to do in person here in Canada. Uh, Hunter safety course and our firearm safety course must be done in person. But we're trying to teach the other stuff, some of the soft skills like, hey, here's where some better ethics come in and how you should pretend uh, how you should portray yourself on the landscape for neighbors, for property owners, all that all the way to, okay, you killed an animal. Now what? All that kind of stuff is in the course as well. So that's developing right now called the hunter's journey. It's supposed to drop. I believe we're dropping it in September. I got to talk to Chris tonight to clarify that, but uh, yeah, we're dropping it this coming September and there'll be like online programs that are like uh, fully videotaped and edited videos of like, okay, these are types of firearms. These are types of hunting weapons. 
all the way to actual like seminar sessions where we all sit together on a Zoom meeting with all the students and walk them through a lot of their questions about what's going on in the hunting world. So things like that we cover with Canadian Bushcraft. We teach in person. Well, we, we were teaching in person. Uh, the lockdown has really changed that, which is why we made a podcast. It's like, okay, how do you stay relevant in a pandemic when all you're known for is teaching people in person in the woods? It's like, it's really hard. So we've been doing live video sessions on Facebook, uh, live chats, like live calls on uh, Instagram, on our Instagram account. And then we just realized, let's make a podcast. It can't be that hard. It's really hard <laughs> until you know what you're doing. And then it becomes Can you really come easy. into the United States? Uh, not yet. But when we can, yes, I, I love going to the States. So when the borders open, why don't you come on down to Kentucky and uh, I'll take you into yeah. the Appalachian Mountains. And, oh, yes. And we can meet Mr. Sasquatch. Yes. Yes. Awesome. I'm 100% on board with this. I, that's one of the few states. I lived in Indiana for a short time, and I was always told about the, the, them Kentucky folk. And I'm like, I really want to meet more of these Kentucky folk. Well, hello. Hello. <laughs> Here we go. Here we go. So, tell yeah, me, I'm, I'm totally on board with that. Tell me about your worst experience in the woods. Oh, that's a good question. I like there's a there's a great quote from Stephen Ranella from the Meat Eater podcast and the TV series where he talks about like there's there's different kinds of fun. There's there's short lived fun and long burn fun where it's not really fun until you look back at it. And that's what I, I, I come to enjoy. Like a roller coaster is quick and you don't tell it to anybody 10 years down the road. You don't tell your grandkids about the one time you rode a roller coaster. But you'll tell your grandkids about that time a mountain lion stalked you through the Black Hills in a downpour and you didn't know which where it was coming from. So, like, that's a little bit more fun to me. I, and I don't understand why, but it's more fun to me. I, I enjoy suffering and being scared in the moment and then just enjoying it the rest of my life afterwards. Um, you are a strange man. <laughs> yeah, this is this is what happens when you're raised with Jim. Um <laughs> For, for those questioning who Jim is, Jim's my former boss and a very dear friend. He's like my big brother and a good friend of Kate's as well. And he's just messes with me all the time. And I mess with him all the time. He tortures me in the woods. Um, you mean he yeah. knows how? Yeah, he, he even knows how to hurt me. He hit me with a Chevy truck once when we were out there. That was, he was, it was stuck and I was digging it out and he decided to hit the gas at the wrong moment and he just like Landed it right on my body, uh, wheel first and, and bunk. Amazingly, there was more damage to the truck than me. I don't know how, but the, the, we de I ended up denting the fender, and it didn't do anything to me. So we just kept on working and got out of there. <laughs> but Is he likes to tell me experience in the woods. That wasn't my worst. I think my worst. That's what I'm trying to figure out. Is with Jim, we were working on a site in Wyoming. Working doing what? Uh, archaeological survey. So I was hired, and that's how I really got a chance to play in the Western states was uh, I'm a Jay Treaty First Nation. So Jay Treaty was a treaty signed way back stating that indigenous, and part of it states that indigenous people cannot be infringed upon from working in the United States of America, even if they're from Canada, um, specifically for Canadian First Nations, because the border didn't exist before the end of the War of 1812. There wasn't real, like there was a, there was a kind of understood border, but it wasn't defined. And that we predate that. Like some of our villages were cut right in half by that border. Like you look at Sault Ste. Marie, it was one whole community. And then they just went, Boop, now you're in two. So part of the J treaty was to allow us to be able to work and live in both nations uh, freely. So I'm looked at as a te technically I'm considered a legal alien, but it's 
the paperwork gets confusing. Uh, so I'm a, I'm an American citizen in a sense. I can't vote right now. I'm not registered for any of that kind of stuff because I've lived in Canada for so long. But uh, I'm technically like a dual citizen. And so I went down to the States to work for Jim because he put up this post online basically saying, like, I am so scared of this job because everyone that's hired so far are city folk. And we're going to some real backcountry stuff. And I was like, I like backcountry stuff. And he's like, can you work in the States? I'm like, I could definitely work in the States. He's like, come on down. And I went on down and I suffered the whole time. And so I love it so much. Um, I love it so much. And near the end of the job, we were working in a part of the Pahasap, the Black Hills, the Sacred Black Hills, over near Hewlett, Wyoming, uh, near Devil's Tower. So for those people who've ever seen like Close Encounters of the Third Kind, we were seeing that big rock face, that big rock formation every day every single day and up until this point every day we would always see some sort of evidence of of mountain lions uh the second day of the job i was mentioning this before we went live him and i got ghosted by a mama cat that went right over our heads on an overhang while we were hearing her baby scream further down the ledge from us and so we got very nervous that was like day two and that was like not the biggest surprise like that was not the biggest mountain lion story of that summer that wasn't even like the top five we had we walked in on a deer that was still gushing blood and we could hear like this purring growl up the hill. We're like, we need to back out of here. So moments like that were happening a lot. We would find kills. We would find scratching posts. We would find turds on the ground, uh, blown out hair from the winter time, all that kind of stuff. And then we left for about a month to work in Colorado, uh, suffered in the desert for a while because we had gotten amoebas or something from the drinking water in town. And then we came back to Wyoming where everything was trying to kill us, but it was fun at least. Um, oh, it's just fun to die. Sure. Well, in those, in those situations, it was like, it was exciting fun. It was like, again, we're talking about that slow burn fun. Whereas in Colorado, I was just crapping my brains out every day, wishing I wasn't in a desert where all my water is leaving constantly. You would drink water and five minutes of vomit. And so it's like, we're in the middle of a desert doing a job and we're dying of of, of dehydration and dysentery. heat exhaustion all the time. Yeah. It was like the game Oregon trail. We were dying of dysentery every day. Um, and then we got back to Wyoming where at least there wasn't bad water. And at least like the locals were friendly and not saying that everybody in Colorado were bad, but the people we had to deal with were not the nicest people. Uh, and then we got back to Wyoming. Everyone's friendly. It's people we know. We kind of know the neighborhood. We know the kind of terrain and it's fun. And, like the biggest threat to us was mountain lions. So like we all carried, we were all packing heat. I had a, a, a GP100 Ruger that Jim lent me in a 357 Magnum load that I just fell in love with because it was a light handgun. He taught me how to handle it safely. It was legal for me to do so because uh, everything was legal, just to make clear for anybody asking, like, how is this Canadian carrying a gun? There was legal reasons we had, we had the ability to. Um, anyways, long story short for all the details – we got back to Wyoming and there was a site we had to work on where there was like a one by one meter square that had to get dug. And usually that job requires two people and that's it. If you're really pushing it, you can put three people on that dig, but you can't fit four. There's nowhere for a fourth person to work on that one by one meter square. And we had four people and we only needed to do the one square at a time. So Jim was like, okay, I don't want you just sitting here being the DJ on the on the radio playing music for us. Can you go maybe do a perimeter walk? I trust you with the GPS to do the job properly. 
uh, and I know that you can handle yourself in the woods and track and uh, or not track, sorry, uh, pace count and everything else. So you know what to do. It's like, yep, I got you. Go start on the road. I want you to see if there's any erosion falling because often a lot of the sites we found were sometimes just right on the surface because the soil there grows so slow. It develops so slowly there in the Black Hills. So often everything was just pedestrian. We found it right on the surface, but sometimes there'd be like a road cut and the ground would get eroded and all the artifacts would fall out onto the road. And so we had found like a Paleo-American site, like a, an ancient site where like people were hunting camels or horses or something in that spot. It was like a butcher site, massive stone tools and everything. And so he's like, go walk the road, check if there's an erosion. And I walked about two miles, I think, give or take, if my memory serves. And my gut started to gurgle. I'm like, oh, crap, that stuff's still here. And so I jumped off the trail, got down into some scrub brush and did my business, washed up, came back up onto the hill. And I was starting to get this sweat beating on my forehead. And I didn't want to get onto my glasses because my shirt was so grimy with dirt that I didn't want to have to wipe my glasses with grimy cloth. So I went to wipe it off, and as I was lifting my hat brim, I saw this thing rolling down the hill, not really rolling, bobbing. Like something was going up and down like like a, a surfboard, uh, not a surfboard, a diving board after somebody launches. I'm like, that's weird. So I just kind of casually reach my hand to my sidearm and look up and track what it is, and it's a mountain lion. And he or she, I'm assuming it was a he because of how big he was, was charging right down to where I was, which was a bottleneck on a cliffside of... Only like a 20, like when I say cliff, I'm not talking like in a movie, like 200 feet. It was like 15 feet, but everything below was hard, sharp rocks. So I didn't really want to take a dive there. And backwards wasn't really much of an option. And forwards is where that cat was running to. I'm like, oh, crap, he's he's bottlenecking me. He's literally pinpointed me into a kill zone. And so I pulled out the handgun and yelled. I always tell people I yelled like something real Wyatt Earpy, like real tough. It was mostly me screaming F off, F off, F off, and just like yelling at Like a little girl. Cat. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, I'd say that. This, <laughs> that. I wouldn't be ashamed to say that. Um, I definitely a childlike tone was in my voice. I can tell you that. I was very glad that I vacated my bowels like two seconds before this happened. <laughs> because it was, when the cat stopped, it was at like 30 feet from me. And that's when I started doing like the quick math in my head of like, okay. David Attenborough said they can jump 25 feet from a sitting position. And he's sitting 30 feet. How quick can I kill it before it lands on me if it jumps? Like that kind of weird math that you never thought you'd have to do in your head. And it just kept looking at me, looking at me. It wasn't really scared of me. It was just like, damn, I I lost my element of surprise. And he just kept focusing on me. So I just pulled the gun to the right because I don't know what my rights are to defend myself from this cat. Like it doesn't sound like, like it hasn't attacked me yet, but it's in position to do so. And so I moved my gun to the right and shot a Ponderosa stump and it just blew into smithereens because it was so rotted. I got hit by shrapnel. He got hit by shrapnel. And so he buggered off back up the hill and then shouted me the whole two miles back to the work site. And I'm just like walking with a pistol drawn, which doesn't feel comfortable, but at least it's like flat ground I'm walking on. But I'm walking with this pistol constantly looking up and every once in a while I just see like an ear flip or a tail twitch or something would show that, no, he's still there. He's, he's still there. I got all the way back, and I'm like, okay, Jim's got a rifle. Jim's got a rifle. I just got to get back to Jim. He's got a rifle. We'll be good. And I get to Jim, no rifle. He had no firearm on him whatsoever because he had parked the truck further down, and he didn't want to carry it back to the job site. All he had was a machete that we used to clear grass when we were cutting sod over. Oh, he's Neanderthal. He can handle that. 
Yeah, so I just walk up to him. He's like, why do you got a gun? I'm like, why didn't you hear the gunshot? Like, you should have been running or trying to get to hold of me. He goes, and the problem was we could have communicated if I had taken the GPS that I'm used to using because it's also our radio. It was like one of those Garmin Rhinos. But that day, because he wanted the perimeter detailed, he had given me the Trimble system. And that's just a giant. It looks like like those 1980 remote controls for televisions had sex with a tricorder from Star Trek. <laughs> like, that's what it looks like. It's just this weird, blocky, looks like, it looks like, uh, what's that material that they make those terrible cups in the military out of? Starts with an M. Welcome Not, to Jim's yeah. wilderness survival class. <laughs> he, that's what he gave me to, to monitor everything with, and therefore there's no radio. And so I couldn't tell him from where I was, hey, a cat just charged me and tried to jump. And he couldn't be like, I don't got a gun. Make sure you stay loaded or anything like that. So I get to Jim. I'm the only one with a firearm on the whole job site. There's a cat somewhere up there, <laughs> like somewhere up in the hills. It was this very eerie, creepy, terrified sensation. And the fact that I was the only one with a firearm on the site really got me nervous because one of the reasons he hired me was to do safety for everyone else. It's like, okay, so now I'm their security guard standing with a firearm and there's these guys digging a hole. And at one point, one of them looked up and he's like, you're not putting us in this hole after, are you? Because I just looked like I was going <laughs> to kill them in their own like, Aunt Doug grave. It's like, no, a mountain lion just charged me. He goes, that's the story you told, but are you sure that's what happened? You're not just trying to set this up? Yeah, so we got out of there within about an hour and a half. And my heart never really came down from the palpitation rate that it was at for like a day and a half. And it never really occurred to me until this past fall do you remember you know you know what social media is like people will send videos and stuff to each other they find on social media one of them was this video of a, a mountain a guy hiking or jogging and on the trail there's a mom cat and her two cubs or three cubs and he just kept trying to get close and kept trying to film her and her cubs and so finally she just turned and charged right at him screaming and everybody sent that to me at like four in the morning when i was just waking up to go hunting <laughs> And I just see this cat charge. Oh, that's comforting. Yeah, and it just brought all these flashbacks. I talked to a doctor. He's like, yeah, you got like a mild PTSD from that. I'm like, but I'm not scared of mountain lions. He goes, that's not how PTSD works. like, oh, weird. It's not a phobia. It's just a... No, no. It's it's just just trauma. Your body went through some stuff that it hasn't fully processed yet, and it doesn't know how to process. So it's like, okay, cool. Am I okay to be around mountain lions again? He goes... You tell me, are you scared of them? Like, I don't think so. I've seen one since then and it hasn't been a problem. So, but yeah, that was, it was like seven years ago and it wasn't until this past fall that I was like, oh yeah, you may actually been traumatized by this cat. <laughs> oh, interesting. Never thought about that before. Yeah. Do you so have it, any it, it was, um, yeah. wilderness Sasquatch stories? Now, first of all, for all of you naysayers out there, you all know that I believe in Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. And I have my reasons for that. Um, oh. And maybe when I'm on Caleb's podcast, y'all can listen in on my stories. We're actually planning a Sasquatch episode, so that would be perfect. Awesome. We've got my friend Nikki is like a devout believer. She's got a tattoo of him right on her left arm. And I would love to have you two shoot the shit on, on Sasquatch. Oh, that would be um, so much fun. I've had we, a have, of, yeah? we have the Wampus Cat on my ranch. There are are, uh, locals that will not hunt on my property because of the wampus cat, which is a form of Bigfoot. Now, I have never 
seen uh, evidence of this wampus cat on my property, but I have mm. heard stories. Uh, right. I believe them because I've had my own experiences elsewhere. Totally. Totally. Okay, your turn. Sasquatch stories. <laughs> so, in my language, we call them Gachish Sabe or Mishasabe, depending on the dialect. And it's like the great, the great big man of the wild kind of thing. And uh, other people call them like Baguajanine, which is like the wild man. There's a few different names across Ojibwe country for them. And they're, we look at them as like a being that creator put here to help take care of the landscape in the background. They're like the, they're like the theater hands before the play happens kind of thing. And that's why we don't see them so well, because once they're done their job, they, they just kind of vanish and go away again. But once in a while, we'll see one or they'll come out and they'll be curious and stuff. And so there's stories like in my like we're in I'm in central Ontario, which is eastern Canada. There's not that much like true wilderness until you get to the northwestern part of this province. Then it's real thick boreal forest. But even here, there's a lot of stories of what we call Kachisabe. And up in Curve Lake, which is a reserve north of me, they've got like sighting after sighting of them up there, dating there back are decades. There a lot of sightings across U.S. and Canada. Yeah, a it's lot. crazy. It's crazy. You wouldn't think it. You would think it would stay over in Western Canada and the Western United States, but it's everywhere. It is. Like, it's everywhere. It's skunk all over Ape, the Appalachia. Oh, yeah. Appalachia, there's tons of them up there. So come uh, play. Bring the wife. <laughs> yeah. Hell yeah. There's uh, – so – the, the only two experiences that I ever had was I was at a ceremony in Manitoulin Island, which is up on between Georgian Bay and Lake Huron, the northern part of the lake, one of the northern parts of the Great Lakes. And uh, during the ceremony, we could hear them like dancing and stomping and almost like guttural singing out in the bush while we were singing and doing our ceremonies. And so that was like, the, I was like, 15, 16 when that happens, so like the hair on the back of my neck, and I started trying to explain it. Like, oh, it's probably just some of the guys messing with us, like all that kind of stuff. I never witnessed them there. Uh, and I didn't really have an experience after that until I was in Wyoming again. And it was on the summer solstice. I had just done a pipe ceremony and put tobacco in the creek, and a couple of the guys joined in, and they want because they this is their first time seeing native ceremony for a lot of them, so they want to participate. And uh, I was like, this is because the solstice is one of our most sacred days. So winter solstice, summer solstice, and the two equinox, and there's a couple other holidays in there, but they're not as like prevalent as Judeo-Christian holidays. And uh, so we put tobacco down. I was like, this is like the longest day of the year, and this is when like life is the longest time frame, but the spirits come out as well. So this is that time of spirit as well. And so we'll, we'll probably see something. And I just said that offhand, like 20, 30 minutes later, we were on a spot on a trail at the bottom of this really wide, like really like the black Hills are technically mountains, but they're kind of like how the, the Appalachia slowly eroded over millions of eons and has gotten more right. rounded topped. They don't right. look like the Rockies or the Himalayas. That's kind of like with the black Hills. They're actually some of the oldest mountains in North America, but they're, they're foothills. They're kind of more barren. Kind yeah. Like, there's a, there's a like lot high of high desert. Yeah. Some parts, some parts for sure. There's a lot of ponderosa pine, which makes it nice and kind of dense looking. Like you can't look straight through it like the plains, but there's definitely a lot less variety of flora there. So there's a lot less to worry about. It's mostly just long grasses. And then on the tops of the hills, you'll have like barren spots just kind of surrounded or crowned by pines. It's a really pretty, like when you walk into the Black Hills, you can kind of feel that it's got like this kind of cathedral atmosphere, this kind of like 
monastery tone to it. Like I was amazed at how little it's public land. Anybody can go in there. Uh, and yet there's no garbage. I found one tin can in the entire five months that we were working around the black Hills. Like even the non-indigenous kind of revere that space and have some respect towards it. Whereas almost anywhere around me, there's trash everywhere. Uh, even in my own yard, because I sometimes get behind on stuff. <laughs> Anyways, um, this big, wide, like sweeping valley, probably about 200 yards across from hill to hill. It was like the flattest land we had ever seen in the entire hills, because everything else is very angular, and you're going up a hill all the time, or going down a hill. There's very little walking across flat land, and there was a creek in the middle uh, where we put tobacco in earlier. And while we're looking at this one kind of feature that we found, the one gentleman on the crew goes. You guys hear that? And as he says that, we hear this like the way I can describe it is like the sound of a howler monkey with the lungs of a grizzly bear. Like, wow. I'm trying to think if I can have something here to help resonate the sound better. I don't have a can, anything like that around me. I got a cup. This might work. I just got a little glass cup here. This might work. There we go, people. For like two minutes solid. Wow. And we're like, So at that point, we had seen mountain lions. We were told there was no bears in the Black Hills. I later disproved that because we saw a black bear a few months later. Um, We'd seen a lot of cows because it's ranch land out that way. And we're like, well, it's not a cat or a cow. What the hell is that? And like all of us are trying to figure out as up creek, we hear like a response like (laughs) as it responds back. (coughs) And we're like, okay, there's two of them. (laughs) Now let me interpret. Yep. The white people. Yes, I'm being racial. The, <laughs> the white people are here. Probably. Probably. Just, and just it, was, it was very like eerie, but I was like, again, like humans. I, yeah. I've heard a lot of sounds in my life and I've heard like the one time I got scared by a sound in the woods, it turned out to be a screech owl. And so I refused to ever get scared by a sound in the woods again. Like, no matter how terrifying the shriek a is. A screech like, owl yeah, is a little terrifying. Thing, they are so loud. And I was, like, 20 at the time, and I was, like, with students and stuff. And I'm like, oh, I don't know what that is. Let's stay in camp tonight, guys. And then, like, a <laughs> couple months later, I found it was just a damned, like, six-inch tall bird. And so since then, I'm like, okay, there's always, a, there's always a reasonable explanation for any freaky sound you hear in the woods. Right. I'm not scared anymore. I'm just curious. And so I'm trying to, like, going down the Rolodex of every animal I can think of, like, not a bear, not a cow, not a moose, not an elk, not a wolf. What is this thing? And as I'm trying to figure that out, our good friend Jim is, like, slowly lifting his rifle, and I'm slowly pushing his rifle back down. <laughs> and he's like, what are you doing? I'm like, what are you doing? How many stories have you heard of that ending well? He's like, not many. I'm like, then stop. You got to... Your gun shoots two, two, three. You don't got a forty-five, seventy here. If that thing's as big as it sounds, you're not going to do anything but piss it off. So as he's putting well, his gun he'll back, he'll throw you to him. He'll throw yeah, you to the bus right? and run. Right? Just like the mountain lion on the cliff. <laughs> <laughs> you check but, it out uh, first. Exactly. You go three, two, seven. So as he says that, we see this like stick come flying out of the brush. Like, and again, it's like 200 yards across from us to the other side of the valley. And so from the other side, we see this stick come swirling out of the brush, stick itself in the mud down by the creek, which is like 50 yards out of the woods. And when I say stick, 
it's the size of a baseball bat. I'm not talking about like a little twig. It's it's a baseball bat sized stick. And it got flung 50 yards out of the woods. So it came from inside the woods, not from the forest edge. And it landed with enough momentum to get stuck like four inches into mud when it landed. So this thing had some swing to it. I'm again going down the Rolex. What other animals can throw shit? Uh, nothing I know. So when my eyes are doing like, you ever seen the movie Predator? And it's like, okay, near the very end, Arnold Schwarzenegger tries to distract the thing by throwing a rock while he's camouflaged. And the thing kind of tracks where the weapon came from, where the rock came originated. So I'm kind of doing that with my eyes, seeing where the stick landed. All I see is what looks like the back end of a moose walking away. That's all I see. I don't see the top of it. I don't see a head. I don't see the shoulders. I just see two long brown legs and an ass. And it's just Enjoy. walking away. And it's like, okay. You I didn't see up there, f- hey, cute butt. <laughs> I should have. I really should have. <laughs> and I, I, I just like, okay, I don't see front legs, so what the hell is that? And Jim's like, I'm not saying it because I'm going to sound crazy. And I'm like, I'm not saying it because I'm going to sound crazy. He's like, what do we do in this situation? He's like, well, if that's what I think it is, it's a sacred being to us and to my people. So do you guys got any food? And he's like, what? I'm like, do you have any food? He pulls out like a cliff bar and... One of the guys pulls out an apple, and we get all these snacks together and put them on a stump with a, a t- with a handful of tobacco as an offering. Like, hey, we're not your enemy. We didn't mean to do any harm. Our apologies. And that's like a respectful way the Anishinaabek handle situations like that. My people handle stuff like that. So we left because a storm was coming in anyway, so we left. And the next day we were driving by that spot, and Jim's like, do you want to go look at your stump like, where all the offerings are? I'm like, yeah. He's like, okay, do it for your lunch break. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. okay. So lunch break comes along and he's like, all the food's gone and the tobacco has been scattered. And it's like the grass down there, we're at the bottom of the valley right by the creek. So there's like, I don't know, a meter and a half tall. So what is that in American? Like three to four feet of grass tall. And yet you can see these like 16 to 17 inch long and like eight inch wide, very rectangular kind of steps coming into the grass. And I'm like, that could be a guy with like boards on his feet trying to mess with us. But his gait is really long. Like that's and how, like, how many people knew you were there. So they, that's the could thing. Be in no there and one, mess with you. you would have to have planned us to be there. And no one knew we were on that specific job site that specific day. We were not going to be there. We originally we were supposed to be on another job site, but the, the, there's too much brush on the trail there. We didn't have time to cut it all out. So we're like, let's go to an easy job, <laughs> which is just down the Valley. Uh, so there was like no one knew, like even our our office manager boss and the people of the US First Service didn't know exactly where we were. So the odds of someone being like, I'm going to scare some people out here and think, make them think there's a Sasquatch is like exponentially low. Like but it was slim to the, none. Yeah, like I would place money on the fact that that was not someone out there planning to do that to us. But it was also the gait and, like, the length of steps. Like, they would have had to have the legs of, like, Shaquille O'Neal or someone else that's massively tall and has long legs. Because those were, like, I'm 6'1". Jim's, like, 6'2", 6'3". Neither of us could make those steps. Neither of us could make those steps. They were so far out. And Jim's like, I bet you want to track it now, don't you? I'm like, yeah, I do. He's like, okay, take a firearm, take a radio, as soon as you lose the trail, because you're going to lose the trail. And you're an call, idiot. Pretty much. Yeah, okay. Go, I'm like, okay. 
So I get down to the creek and I'm like, okay, I'll see mud and know exactly what this is. Cause I'm thinking either this is, a, this is what we're both talking about right now, or it's a brown bear that someone has not spotted get all the way from Yellowstone to here. And that's a huge thing. Like that's either way, this is a giant find and I want to know what it is. So I get down to the mud. I'm like, they're going to walk right through that mud and leave tracks. They jumped the entire Creek. Good Lord. They skipped over all the mud and landed in grass again. Like what the hell, what animal knows to have like bears can backtrack. Moose can backtrack and they'll do like what's called button hooking where they'll, run down a trail and then come back and swing around to watch what's following them. Right. So I can believe that, but this was not the same thing. This was a full avoidance of a track trap. I'm like, okay, well, they're not going to do that twice if this is a normal animal. And they're not I'm, stupid. Yeah. Apparently. I'm going to follow them. Yeah. And I'm going to follow them up the hill and there's a road up there that's all sandy. Again, I'll find some tracks. They jump the road uphill, mind you. Like they, they went uphill to get over that road, leaving nothing on the shoulders, nothing on the gravel and nothing on the sand. And I'm like, okay, so this thing knows how to evade. Like this is, this is like classic evade, like escape and evasion tactics. Do not. And we can take lessons from them. Totally. So I start following up into the pine duff going up one of the hills. And eventually as Jim forecasted, I lost the trail because this pine duff just started to spring back up over the 24 hours or whatnot. And Jim's like, okay, Jim. Jim may be a dork sometimes. <laughs> Smart. He's, yes, he is very intelligent. One of my but, favorite but people. If he is listening to this, I did not say that. You paid me and the check is in the mail, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I'm I'm now lost. Like, I'm not lost. I know where I am, but I don't know where it went. So I lost the trail. So I radioed Jim like, hey, yeah, I'm done. Can't find where it went. He goes, can you like pin on the radio where you are because again it's a radio gps system so one of those garmin rhinos and so i dropped a pin also i'm not endorsed by garmin don't worry folks <laughs> but they're just a decent a decent uh gps system that's a like i can afford it at least but uh he's like you're about where that stick came from can you find the stick on the ground and i'm like there is no spots in this pine duff that looks like something pulled a stick off the ground to throw and he's like, well, it looks kind of fresh because I guess he went down to investigate the stick. And he's like, it looks kind of fresh. And I look up about where I am and about 12 feet up, there's a green pine branch that's been twisted like a Twizzler and snapped. Oh, wow. I'm like, okay. Oh, gosh. So it has opposable thumbs because it can grasp and twist. It's able to reach 12 feet up and it can evade tracks, uh, track traps like sand and mud. What am I looking at here? It's like everything screams like Kichisabe or Sasquatch or Bigfoot or whatever you want to call it. Everything people. screams, get the hell out of there. That too. That too. And I did right after we like, after I saw that branch, I got shivers. Like, okay, let's get out of here. And it was like, to this day, Jim and I call them like bipedal sapient Americans. We won't outright say Sasquatch because it feels, as soon as you say it, and I'm sure you've had it happen to you. As soon as you say that word, everybody looks at you differently. Yes. Everybody, like, it doesn't matter how experienced you are in your field of study. As soon as you be like, I saw or experienced one, they're like, you are some hillbilly weirdo that doesn't know what he's talking about. And it's like, I may have been raised by hillbillies, but that doesn't change the fact that I experienced seeing one or at least experienced experiencing one. I am not endorsed by this uh, YouTube site, but there's a YouTube site uh, called, um, it's called something. 
uh, <laughs> for the life of me, I can't think of it, but um, the facts, it's called the facts, uh, how, okay. how to hunt. Oh, yeah, yeah, I think I know this. And these are literal encounters of people from all walks of life, from the lowly six-year-old that's sending this man an email to neuroscientists, to military personnel, to generals. Mm -hmm. These are people for the last, I'd say, seven or eight years that have been sending their stories into Steve. And these are their encounters. It's, I thought about writing into him, but I'm too chicken. I, <laughs> I know. I know those feelings. I didn't know what my story read for, like, everybody and their brother and Tom's dog to hear it. I want everybody mm-hmm. to hear it from me. Yeah. Totally. And if you want to, like, look at me and think that I'm a hillbilly stupid person, well, y'all, I am. And <laughs> I, I come from the south. And y'all just need Hell to yeah. know that every word that you say is a double syllable. Hey, did ice cream, you know, so, so all, yeah. all joking aside, I believe that they're out there. Oh, hundred percent. And, um, right now I am not in Kentucky. I am someplace else. And, um, I want to go hunting. I want to go searching. Well, when the border opens up, I'll join you for that. The, the, for real? The, oh, hell yeah. I'm all hundred percent on board with that stuff. Are you going to bring your wife? If it's the summertime, she's a teacher, so she's got to be here during the school year. But awesome. I'd be 100% on board. I'd be 100% that on board. would be so the, much fun. I made an argument with somebody a couple years back. Cause like, if, if they're that big and they're this and this, they would have been seen like, okay, I'm not sure how good you know your geography of Ontario, Canada. Um, there's a town called Markham, Ontario, which is down towards Toronto. Right, right. I know where that's at. Centralish Ontario for our listeners, like South Central Ontario, very southerly. It's not as south as like Niagara Falls, but damn near close. And the year, the last, one of the last years, I think 2017, that I went moose hunting, uh, the day after the season closed, over 250 people spotted a bull moose in Markham, Ontario, in one of the fields. And like video cameras, photo photography. Like people, and it was confirmed, yes, a moose somehow wandered down through the entire highway corridor from central Ontario up near Georgian Bay is where this moose came from. was like hundreds of kilometers away, and no one saw the freaking thing until it showed up in a field in Markham. And you're going to tell me that you're going to spot something that knows how to evade and escape? Right. Come on. Come on. Right. As, as, well, as, some, some people believe that they are extraterrestrial some believe that they are from another dimension yeah extra dimensional i've heard that and i i do not know what to think my experience was you know people say that they're terrified of them when they first see them i i was not afraid Mm. um there was no fear instilled in me Uh, they say well i never saw one but the hair stood on the back of my neck Uh, well no my experience was more I was in a search and rescue situation mm. and I'll save that for your podcast, but sure, please. Um, I was one of the rescuers and to make right. a long story short. So we save it for your podcast is it saved my life. Really? I believe and that's that. all I'm going to say until I believe your that. podcast. I totally believe that the, like I said, to our people, to my people, it's that being is 
a being put here by creator, which means it's what we call Manitou or Manitou is like the more common place term for it. Like when you hear the word Manitou, it comes from my language. Okay. Um, and it means like, in a sense, like a benevolent being that's helpful. So like Thunderbird is a Manitou because they bring the rain and they clear the land and everything else. Um, underwater Panther, Michigan, uh, Michiwinapishu or Mishapishu is the one that makes the ice break and keeps the rivers flowing and is the father of all the, it's kind of like in a sense, almost like Poseidon, the father of all the beings in the water. And Sabe, Kichisabe is one of them. He's a man. They are a Manitou being. And so we aren't afraid of them in our culture. We get startled when they show up for sure. Cause like, do you expect to have a spirit being show up in your backyard? Right. Probably not. Right. My stepdad. My stepdad was Native American. Oh really? Uh, from from uh, southeast Oklahoma, and he's a uh, Choctaw. And so yeah. I heard, I heard so many stories from their elders. That shows you my age when I talk about their elders. Yeah. But um, I learned so much from listening to his culture until I was about 12 years old. I learned so much and I wish I would have listened more. <laughs> right. I get that a lot myself too. Like growing up with a father, like I, where I live right now is on my family's reserve. I'm, we live right on Rice Lake, the North shore, Hiawatha first nation. And I'm surrounded by my grandmother, my aunts, my uncles, and they'll tell me things that I, I like that like in their eighties and seventies and stuff now, Oh, and clean like, from that now. And I, I and I am because I'm kicking myself for not doing it when I was younger because they're telling me like seven years, like eight years ago, I started my own trap line and I was like trying to figure out, okay, I got all these muskrats that I trapped. I don't have any wire stretchers to stretch the first. I don't know what to do in this situation. And my grandma was like, well, I showed you how to do that when you were seven, when I was skinning muskrats. I'm like, what? She's like, I showed you how to do that like 20 years ago. I'm like, what? And it was taking a red willow. Uh, some people call it Red Osier Dogwood. It's a member of the Dogwood family. Even though it's called Red Willow, it's not a willow. It's Dogwood. And they're a shrub that gets like sometimes like eight or nine feet tall, but the best ones are about pinky thick to pencil thick. And they're what we use for making a lot of baskets, making medicines, all that kind of stuff. But she vividly remembers growing up as like a five to seven-year-old. She was the oldest kid in the family. So her father, who was a trapper, took her out with her all the time, took her out with him all the time. And he would catch the muskrats in the traps and he would skin them and then give her the pelt. And she would have to get a red willow about elbow to fingertip long. And sometimes the big ones from armpit to fingertip long on a kid. So it's kind of hard to gauge now as an adult. Um, and she would whittle the two ends until they looked like weird kind of opposite facing hooks and then just interlock them with no cordage no nail, no screw, and it would become a hoop that would hold tension until it was put into the pelt, and then the pelt would hold the tension, and now she had all these skins to carry on her back. Oh, and they wow. would go home and hang them around the wood stove to dry them, and that's her one of her most fondest memories. And when I was seven, she showed me that, and I didn't even... I was probably, like, focused on what Pokemon show was going to come out next or something. Right. And not caring at all that she was showing me how to skin and, and stretch these muskrats, and now I was a trapper piled up with like 10 muskrats not sure what to do in this situation and she was like oh just do this and i kicked myself ever since so anytime any of my elders or community members are like hey i know something about this i immediately stop what i'm doing and ask them like show me i don't care i don't care if it's like how to shovel snow better <laughs> or right. here's how to build a birch bark canoe i will stop anything i'm doing to see what they're going to show me because there's so much wealth of knowledge and no one's listening to them 
no one's going like it, it breaks my heart but i'm there's like four or five of us in my community maybe that would go out of our way to go learn from as many of our elders in our own community as possible and then the other people our age and younger i'm 32 but there's kids that are 18 that would be like the perfect sponges for this information and they're just not going to do it because they'd rather go they'd Jim rather go to town and get a job what's that Jim lied again. He said you were 34. He's not a hundred percent wrong. I'll be 33 in a couple months, but oh, okay. He's just close. He, he's, he's just close. close to being wrong. Got it. Well, he's That's, the main, what do you expect anyway? He's, yeah. And he's worked with bombs and stuff. So he knows what like close enough means to him. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, we are almost out of time. Oh, geez. I would love to have you back on because I'm not finished with my questions. Please, yeah, I can come back anytime. I would love to have you back on. Um, I would like for you to tell my listeners how they can find you. Totally. Uh, so my company is called Canadian Bushcraft. If you're watching on uh, a video of any kind, you can see this big logo of a dragonfly and a maple leaf behind me. That's my company's logo. So anytime you look up Canadian Bushcraft and you see that, you know you're on the right path. Uh, we have Instagram. We have Facebook. We have a YouTube channel, but we haven't put a lot of content out in the last couple of years just because it's been a hectic couple of years. Um, but we're bringing out some new content in the next few months. We're hoping to get it out from this June, but then the lockdown in Ontario got extended longer and it became, I'm not going to get into it. But anyways, we have a YouTube channel, a Facebook page called Canadian Bushcraft, an Instagram chat page called Canadian Bushcraft. And that's all we have right now. There's a group on Facebook. You can find like a, in, there's Facebook pages and groups. The page is where you see all of our formal stuff. The group is kind of like our forum. And we have some of the most bright minded outdoors instructors i've ever met from around the world in that group we have people from michigan from california from uh, a couple of people from south africa a couple of people from uh, Ser uh serbia some people from uh colombia all over the world are part of that group and they're sharing openly and freely all their information and we like the group clearly it's part of my company so we use it to promote the podcast and promote a lot of our stuff but it's also just somewhere to share knowledge and That's I don't awesome. think knowledge should be paid for. The only time that we get paid is when we run a course to cover expenses of the course. Right. I'm not getting paid for the knowledge I carry. I'll throw that out openly every time I can because it belongs to everyone. And if I just kept it for myself and gate kept it and held it here and then I died, what did I accomplish? What did I do right. to help anybody? Right. So, yeah, Canadian Bushcraft, look it up. If you see the Dragonfly logo, you know you're on the right path. And yeah, if you want to support us, you can also find our Patreon. We put a lot more extra content on our Patreon. And again, just go into patreon.com, look up Canadian Bushcraft. If you see that Dragonfly logo, you're on the right path. And we do everything from live sessions with them for our own podcast, which we'll be doing in a couple more weeks. We're just going to announce it tomorrow. Uh, I guess I'm announcing it right now. We'll be doing a live session on our <laughs> podcast, a live recording with all of our Patreon supporters who can get on there. We're going to be recording with them live and then putting that out for Sunday is kind of a, a bi-monthly kind of thing. Every two months we do that as well as you can get everything from like $1 tier all the way to $50 tier and all those tiers, you get different kinds of kickbacks, but everything we put out is patron only articles. So there's a bunch of articles that you can only access if you're on Patreon uh, and everybody on our Patreon gets access to those. There's chances of raffles. Like when we did our, we were hatching ducks this past spring for our, for our homestead. We're almost and, out of time. Oh, shoot. And so we made a, a hatch watch <laughs> video and everybody could vote on the names of the birds. So things like that. So oh, join us awesome. there. That's yeah. awesome. Um, I look forward to scheduling you back on. 
for sure. Because this is going to be awesome. Um, everybody, this ends the broadcast for me tonight. I want to thank my special guest, Caleb Musgrave, for sharing my campfire with me tonight. It's been an honor to meet you. This, you too. Especially when we can like throw Jim under the bus together. Yes. Remember, everyone, train hard and train smart to survive, thrive, and stay alive. And this is Kate signing off. Until next time. You say you love this country. You say you really care. But America is dying. I don't see no.